So you all know Tuesday is election day, so I have to do a sermon about the election. So we'll just take a random text and we'll talk about who you should vote for, right? I mean, nothing about the election today. I've, I've recently come to learn some, some bad words. So I was going to share those with you because it's important to know curse words. The worst curse word I found out this week, I hate to do this in a sermon, but I'm going to do it. A, B. Do you guys know that's the worst curse word ever? A, B. Don't say A, B. I know it's the worst curse word because a certain child that lives in my house came home very angry that a, uh, his friend's older sisters were fighting with them and they were saying curse words. It wasn't that bad because they didn't say A, B. Now, I'm not going to tell you what A, B really comes from. It's two other letters that have gotten confused over the time along the lines of you don't want to stick this finger up in the air, because that's also a bad thing. But the worst curse word other than AB and the finger is this word that is not actually allowed in our house. Sometimes it gets spelled, or sometimes it comes across like this. Not from the adults. Don't make me say, shut up. Well, today I want to talk about shut up. Because we're going to look at a text where certain people were told to We'll just say, zip it, how about? We're told to zip it. And it was interesting as I was looking at this, because if you've known me for more than 30 seconds, you realize that I like to talk. And when I was a kid, I was sometimes told to zip it, particularly by my father, who would say, can you just stop talking for a minute? And little did he understand, I really couldn't. And it's never stopped. So if my dad comes to church, you may see him tell me, okay, zip it, we may have a shorter sermon. But today we're going to talk about zipping it. We're going to look at a, a couple people who were told to zip it, and I'm going to tell you guys that we're actually zipping it too much, that we should be talking a little bit more, and for that I'm really thankful. We're going to be in Acts 4 today. And I'm going to take the first 12 verses. And I was having quite a, quite a bear of a time with this text this week. And then something struck me, which is what I'm going to share with you. So let's, let's kind of recap where we are. Acts 1, you remember, Jesus was still on earth. Jesus ascended. And after he ascended, the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came upon the, the early believers. And we saw the baptism or the receiving of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. After the Holy Spirit came, the, these guys and, and other people, were, were the disciples were out talking in foreign languages, and a, a crowd that had gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost came to see what was going on. They thought maybe they were drunk, and Peter stood up and said, No, these people aren't drunk. What you have is the fulfilling of the Old Testament. The, the Holy Spirit has come because the Messiah has come. And that led to people coming to faith in large numbers. And we, we saw what the early church was up to in Acts 2, 42-47, as we looked at devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And then Peter and John went to the temple at the hour of prayer. We're in Acts 3 now, and there was a lame beggar. And they told him they had no silver or gold, but they said, we got some get-up in us. And they healed him in Jesus' name, and he stood up, and he was dancing around, and they went into the temple, and Peter preached a, another sermon. And many people came to faith through that sermon, and as this is happening, as they were speaking to the people, and this lame man who is no longer lame is hanging on 
literally hanging on to Peter, we get to Acts 4. It says, And they, Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, came upon them greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about five, came to about five thousand. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, "By what power, by what name, do you do this?" Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, "Rulers of the people and elders." If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I broke this into four sections. You have three, and I apologize for the, uh, for the typo. Apparently I neglected one of them. It's prayer, preaching, persecution, and the missing one is going to be prison. And as I was looking at this text, I realized to fully understand what's going on, we have to back up and put it in a, in a greater context. Back in Acts 2 and 42, it says, And they, the disciples, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And I started thinking, what did they pray about? I don't imagine they prayed about a a 1 p.m. soccer game, though there's nothing wrong with praying about a 1 p.m. soccer game. I don't imagine they prayed that God would keep the power on during the storm. Yes, there was no electricity running to houses back then. But I'm sure they prayed about things like that, regular things that that occurred in their day-to-day lives. But I also think they prayed for something that maybe we don't pray for enough. When you see what happened in Acts 2, when you see what happened in Acts 3, you see people coming to faith. And you see people coming to faith through the preaching of men and women, not recorded yet in Scripture, though we'll get there, who knew the Lord and loved the Lord and understood that Jesus had come to die so that they might be blessed and have abundant life. And I am certain that one of the things they prayed for was God to open the eyes of those who didn't know Him so they might understand the incredible love that God had for them. That God might use them in the process. And we see this happen in Acts 2 and Acts 3 as Peter preaches. This wasn't kind of just Peter and John moved through life. Peter and John moved through life being equipped and praying and praying prayers that were pleasing to God in part, desiring that God would reveal himself to many, understanding that God's desire is that none should be lost, but all should be saved. And I don't think that it's coincidental, because there are no coincidences before a sovereign God, but I don't think it's coincidental that these prayers led to opportunities for Peter and John and the other believers in the early church to have opportunities to declare the truth of who Christ was to many people. And I wonder if in our time, perhaps, we don't fully understand the importance of prayer. 
You know, we talk about friend, friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. Those people we live in relationship with. I was thinking for myself, and maybe you could relate, and I was wondering, what would happen if I truly took prayer seriously and prayed for my family who didn't know Jesus, for my friends who didn't know Jesus, for my neighbors who didn't know Jesus? What would happen if I, if I truly prayed for God to open their eyes and reveal His wonderful truth to them and even use me in the process as I live my life in courageous obedience and equip myself to speak the words that He desires, trusting that He will give me the words at the proper time? Is it possible that God might use me and you all in ways similar to how he used these early believers who prayed this way. And I think that that might in fact be the case because I'm pretty sure God talks about that. So understand that as we get to Acts 4, there's a lot of prayer going on in the lives of these early believers who are being used so mightily. And what they're praying is for opportunities to preach. Now the message they preached is not an easy message, is it? The message they preached is in fact an impossible message to receive by human ears. In Acts 3, the, the message they preached was the same as in Acts 4, though the words were different. But they were declaring that Jesus was God in the flesh, and that people lived in open rebellion before Jesus. And these people he's speaking to killed Jesus, but Jesus loved them so much that he offers forgiveness if they'll repent and turn to him. As you look here in 4, as you get later on in uh, verse 12, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That probably comes from them hearing Jesus tell them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, what happens when you preach that message, when you share that truth? Well, shockingly, people don't go, Cool beans, count me in! In fact, most of the times, they don't do that. Most of the times, there are three, well, there are three responses. They will either uh, be apathetically indifferent, good for you, that's great. They will become very angry at you. They will call you certain names, either out loud or behind your back. Or they will become inquisitive. In rare instances, you will actually see someone during that, that presentation of the truth have their eyes fully opened. But usually you find an inquisitiveness. Well, here, as they were speaking to the people, and you'll notice if you look closely, as you get later on, um, they were speaking for hours to these people. Because they were put in prison because it was evening, but remember they went to the temple at the hour of prayer in the afternoon. So you're talking about a three-hour window here of these guys, these guys sharing the truth of Jesus. And as they're speaking, some folks showed up. The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. The priests were, were obviously the, the priests. How do you have to describe them? These were the people who represented God. The captain of the temple, these were the, the Roman authorities. They were like the police who kept order in the temple. And the Sadducees were one of the the leading groups. Remember the Pharisees, as you go through the Gospels and Acts, you get a heavier emphasis on the Sadducees. And they weren't too happy. And because they weren't too happy, something happened, which is the bulk of the text we're looking at today. And what we see here is the first persecution of the church. 
This is something that was promised by Jesus, but we see it begin to happen here. The Sadducees, being the power players in this group, were coming in with a belief system based off of no resurrection. You'll see later on in Acts, when Paul gets in trouble and he's brought before a council of Pharisees and Sadducees, he uses this resurrection issue to create a division between the people. The Pharisees believed in no resurrection. I'm sorry, the Sadducees. No resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or a spiritual realm. They didn't believe that God was sovereign. They felt that man was a master of his own destiny. They were the spiritual liberals of the day. I'm not using liberal in a political sense. I'm using liberal in the sense of loosey-goosey with God's word. And what happened was these men came into the temple, and they didn't want them in the temple, and they were preaching a truth that ran contrary to what the Pharisees or the, the Sadducees believed. They were ruining the setup of the priests. And the temple guard, the police in the temple, they didn't like it because they didn't want to have division and and potential for conflict in there. So these guys were mad because a worldview was being presented which undermined everything they believed. What Peter and John was saying was, Sadducees, priests, what you believe is a flat-out lie and you're completely wrong. In fact, you are going to spend eternity separated from God because you deny God. You think you love God, But you deny God. And that led to some anger. That led to them being locked up. Now let me back you into the book of John for a moment here. We're going to have a little conversation. In John 15, Jesus says something very interesting. John 15, verse 18. This is after, you know, the the I am the vine, you are the branches. He begins to talk about the hatred of the world. Listen closely to this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Do you realize that we live in a time in history when the persecution against God's church is the greatest greatest it's ever been? There have been more people killed for their faith in our time than in all of church history before. Just not in the United States of America. But do you think that you have, I'm asking this as a question, faced persecution for your faith. Now, I'm not wanting someone to stand up and say, look, my arm is fake, it was chopped off because I profess Christ. But can you think of ways, and I bet you can if you think about it, can you think of ways that that you have faced persecution for your faith, or are they kind of hard to come up with? Mm-hmm. It's a form of persecution. But I was yeah, it's... When I shared with my neighbors this morning that I was um, leaving for church, um, would be questioned, well, when did you become um, so holy? Mm-hmm. Um, that be a form of persecution? I, yeah, I, th- I think that's a form of it. But isn't it interesting, though, that we don't seem to face much 
persecution. Have you noticed? That we could, as Christians, go through life fairly persecution-free. Which made me wonder, is Jesus lying, or was he wrong? Or is something a bit askew with us? Because Jesus says, Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I think sometimes what we're missing here is we're not talking enough. The Sadducees told Peter and John, um, in verse 18, we won't get there today, says, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Do you think the devil's trying to get that to happen with Christians in America today? Is he concerned that, that the, the people who love Jesus in America today are talking too much about Jesus? Or do you think he's quite happy with how we're acting right now? I mean, these were, these were men and women and, and kids who were who were going out and boldly proclaiming their faith in a world that hated it, that they knew they faced extreme risk and peril because of it. Peter died upside down on a cross. This Peter. John, boiled in oil, exiled to Patmos, because somehow he didn't die when they boiled him in oil. When they would go back and worship with the other disciples, especially the apostles, John's the only one that got through life without being martyred for his faith. These guys were laying it on the line for Jesus. There was actually no risk associated in it because they knew who was in control of all things. But I think they had a more full glimpse of the reality of who Christ was and perhaps we do. As you read through Peter's letters, he'll talk often about persecution. James will talk about persecution. James says this really strange thing. Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And he goes on to talk about how it leads to maturity and joy. These guys were either out of their minds, or they knew something that we didn't know. They understood the reality, though, that comes from the world hating us. They understood what Paul's talking about in Ephesians, that we live in the midst of a battle. We live in the midst of a spiritual war, and as Christians, we're on the winning side, but we're still in the midst of the battle, and we're called to don the full armor of God and wield the the word of truth as our sword and go out into the world and confront the lies. But as you look at people out there, do you really think of, uh, of the fact that the world hates Christians? That when the world is confronted with the truth of Christ, it makes them angry? If you don't believe me, look at history. God sent these people called prophets. What happened to the prophets? They got killed. God gave the people his word. What happened with his word? They polluted his word. God um, gave the people warnings. Read the, the book of Judges, the cycle of apostasy. The people ignored his warnings. And then God came and dwelt in the flesh among them. And what did they do to God in the flesh? They tore up his flesh and they nailed him to a cross. And if you can envision Jesus hanging on the cross right there, what you see is what the world thinks of God and his truth. Now guess who we are? We're ambassadors of that guy nailed to the cross. We're the messengers of that truth that got him hung up on the cross. And as we proclaim that truth, we run into a risk 
And the world tells us when they begin to hear that truth, shut your mouth, zip it, no more. It's exactly what they told Peter and John. And you know what we've begun to do, I think, myself included, perhaps the chief amongst all sinners, we've zipped it. You know, I was thinking about our part of our conversation last night, this morning. We live in a country that is designed to allow religious freedom, which is an awesome thing. That you can believe in Jesus, you can believe in the Easter Bunny, and you can worship your toothbrush, and you have that freedom in America. And that's great. But I think we've so easily missed the boat of what the religious freedom entrusted to us is. It's not to say that all faiths are equally valid. It's to say that all people all can worship the faith they want. But as Christians, we understand that we have the only true faith, just as the Founding Fathers did. The Founding Fathers didn't say, well, you know, for us, Christianity works, so we'll use that. And we'll let other people use what they want to use, and we're not going to intrude upon... No, no. They're saying, this is the way, and the truth, and the life. You know, if you look at some of the, the presidents that existed up through about number 38, 39. You listen to some of their speeches, read some of their writings, they will be laughed out of the White House today. The, 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 the ways they determined right and wrong was in a religiously tolerant nation... But what's happened over the years is we've been told by the culture to zip it. Zip it. Keep it to yourself. Quiet. Get it out of the schools. Get it out of the politics. Get it back into your house and in your church and keep it to yourself. And whatever works for you is good for you. And whatever works for me is good for me. And little by little, we've slowly come to fall into this trap. And I wonder if perhaps the reason is we're afraid of persecution. Maybe part of it comes from the fact that we don't fully understand or grasp, we understand, we don't fully um, believe the robustness of, of who Jesus really is. And when we look at people, we don't understand the situation they're really in. Because there are a lot of really nice, sweet, kind people out there living really good lives who don't love Jesus. And it can be confusing when you look at them and they're so nice and they care so much about other people and they do some really, really nice things to think of the fact that they are separated from God for all of eternity, and if they were to die this day, what awaits them is far more miserable than they can ever fathom. And that's what we should have had, too. And then God says to us, Look, guys, my desire is that none should be lost, but all should be saved. I could do this in a variety of ways, but I'm really going to whack you out, and I'm going to have you guys go and tell them this truth. You know when God sent Moses? This just popped in my head, so it may be junk or it might be good. You decide. When God sent Moses into Egypt, did God have to have Moses go to Pharaoh? Like, couldn't he have gone with the angelic host? Wouldn't it have been better if Gabriel showed up? Pharaoh would be like, oh my goodness! You know what? Gabriel shows up and he's like, Pharaoh, let God's people go! And Pharaoh would be like, okay, go, go, go! But he chose this, this lame dude who was super old, coming out of the desert, who was smelling like animals that he was hanging around with the heck was God thinking? He could have gone so much better than that. And then he could have helped Moses out a bit, but he took the stammer in Moses, who got freaked out under pressure. But, 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 but God, I can't do it. And God didn't know that. He's saying, you're right, you can't do it. So you got to lean on me. Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. You can be sure Moses like, God, you have a billion other ways you could do this besides me, and they'll be far more effective. God, probably be, perhaps I do, but this is the best way, and you can't understand it. Well, fast forward through history a few thousand years. 
And God says to us, don't go to Pharaoh, but go into the world that hates me. And go out into that world and tell them that I love them. And as you're telling them, make sure you live like you know it. But God, that's not going to go so well. What do you mean it's not going to go so well? They're not going to like me very much. They're not going to like the message, and they may get angry at me. They might. Well, what do I do? Well, you have a choice. You could be strong and courageous and understand that I'm going with you. Or you can run away and hide. You know, I think someone else tried to do that once, Jonah. A lot of other people along the way. You can do that. But God, does it really matter if I go away and hide? Like, won't you send somebody else? Well, what makes you think I would send somebody else? Well, because you're sovereign and you're going to do what you're going to do. That's right. And I'm going to send you out to go and tell them. And don't worry so much about how it's going to work, but understand this. There's a serious responsibility upon you. But I need you to also seriously consider what I'm sending you out to tell people. You're not going out to have an intellectual argument. This isn't a political discussion. This is a presentation of a wonderful truth. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus in John 15 says, And I want you to understand something. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. But I want you to love your enemies just like I love them too. Because those are the people I died for because you guys used to be persecutors. Just like Saul. Remember Saul tried to destroy the church? Remember the little man Ananias who got to go and speak to Saul? Do you think he, that day, now he had, he had an interesting uh, revelation from God what he was to go and do down on straight street, so you might think it would give him a, a robustness to, you know, a little, a little stiffening in his spine, but he's still a little freaked out. Do you think he fully expected that Saul, the great persecutor of the church, was going to come to faith? That didn't make sense. Well, what happened when Peter and John stood up and started preaching here? Nah, they were imprisoned. But as they were in prison, it also tells us that the number of men who believed came to about 5,000. That's men. Actually, believe it or not, women and children came to believe in God too. Heaven is populated only by men, in case you didn't know this. That's why in in, uh, conservative Jewish temples, women have to sit behind a curtain because they ain't going to heaven, right? No. That's just, it's culturally how it was communicated here, but you probably have fifteen to 20,000 people have come to faith in a very short period of time. But yet, these guys were about to face persecution. So as they were shackled up, and they were brought to prison, do you think they were just, just freaking out? Or do you think they were rejoicing? So what stands in the way for us? In this instance, the devil tried to kill the church. In our culture, the devil doesn't seem to be particularly involved in the church. In fact, I think he's quite happy with the church today. We keep it, in, keep it inside a holy huddle. We don't bring it outside too much. We live no differently than the world around us. He's not quite concerned. You don't offend many people with the gospel out there, do you? Well, the devil loves that. Because there must be an offense. And I think our biggest barrier, and here's my challenge for you guys to think about. Ego. I think ego comes into play. I think sometimes we get concerned that people won't like us. That we might become ostracized. That, that we might be marginalized. That we might be thought of as crazy nuts. You know, religious fanatics. A holier-than-thou mentality. That, that um, maybe there's an aspect we don't believe in the reality of hell. Or think that our silence has consequences. And we forget what we have become. The reality is we go through the book of Acts. As we will see is we are charged with proclaiming the truth. And there is a consequence to proclaiming the truth, both good and bad. 
Back in, in John's Gospel, again, Jesus had a bunch of people following him. And then something happened whereby his teachings were too hard and the majority ran away. And he said to the disciples, you all want to run away too? And Peter says, well, where are we going to go? Peter recognized who Christ was. Other people tried to follow Jesus, and he explains how, you know, certain animals have holes they can go and rest and hide in, but if you follow the Son of Man, that's not going to be the case for you. Jesus wasn't out there trying to bring people in by soft-selling the gospel. In fact, when you read closely, he was encouraging people to consider the cost of being a follower of his. And I think that's something we need to consider, too. That there is a downside in a human sense to being a robust follower of Christ, walking in obedience to him. And I think we should rejoice in the fact that we live in a time and in a place where we have the ability to live out our faith in public without being incarcerated or, or shot or beaten or stoned. Uh, and while you may laugh at me, if we could record it and we can look back 50 years, I, I wonder if we continue upon this current track, if 50 years down the road we might not have those same freedoms. There are certain places around the world where people are risking their lives to gather together on Sunday to worship God. In our culture, it's more like we have to beg them out of the house to come and worship God. There are people who are doing everything they can to present the truth of Christ to people who haven't heard it. Yet I sometimes struggle with presenting it to people who are standing right there and perhaps even desirous to hear it. And I think what I forget is this whole prison thing. Peter and John were brought to prison. They were left in prison overnight. And I was trying to think about what would be going through their minds as they were put in the, the cell for the evening and the lock was clanked shut. Door slam, lock, clank. What was going through their minds? And I wondered, you know, because sometimes you see these cats singing songs of praise to God and they come out of the, the prison rejoicing that they were considered worthy of suffering for the name of Christ and, and they weren't faking it. I wonder, what, what are they doing in there? Are they sitting there all slunk over, shaking in the corner? John, we're going to die. This is going to hurt real bad. We're going to die. What do we do? We've got to go down and call for help. Start digging. What do we do? Ah! John's like, Peter, shush already. Oh, shush. I'm losing my mind. Were they freaking out in the corner? Or were they somehow rejoicing? And I think they were rejoicing because they understood something happened there. They were in a physical prison where they could face severe bodily harm when they were removed from that box the next morning and brought before the council here. But they understood that they were in there under the sovereign control of God because they were walking in obedience to Him. And that nothing was going to happen to them outside of God's sovereign control. If God wanted to open the prison door, God would open the prison door. If God wanted to shake the earth... God would shake the earth. If God wanted to smote the prison guard, God would smote the prison guard. But it wasn't as if they were forgotten in a prison cell outside of God's control. They were using their lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And there were some other people who were in prison that got out. It just happened to be spiritual prison. There were 5,000 men plus women and children who were incarcerated in spiritual prison with no way to get out at all who faced an eternity separated from God. And the doors had been cracked open through the preaching of Peter and John. 
And when they walked to that prison cell, and when the door was shut, and they spent a dark, cold night in a smelly, horrendous environment, I think that they rejoiced over the fact that God had revealed his truth to them, that God was fully in control of their circumstances, and that 5,000 men and women and children could be called brothers and sisters in Christ because they had been forgiven. When we look at people around us, we need to understand the reality of the fact that apart from Christ, they live in spiritual prison, condemned to death. Not because God is cruel, not because God is, is wicked and, and delights in people's suffering, but because God gave us free will. God gave us religious freedom, didn't he? God could simply say, I will allow no other religious philosophy to enter into humanity. You will be forced to only know about Jesus. You know, he could have left that, that tree out of the Garden of Eden. You ever think about that? What, what if God kept the forbidden fruit out of the Garden of Eden? Well, then Adam and Eve would never have sinned, and we would never have been in this mess, right? You know, when, when God created the devil, wait, does that sound horrible? God created the devil. God knows everything. Well, why the heck would he create the devil? And the devil's going to cause all this trouble. On What if he just skipped that guy? So, skip the forbidden fruit, skip the devil, you skip that whole problem, the temptation in, in the garden, and then we're all just living happily ever after. God could have done that, couldn't he? But God said, you know what? Let's go with freedom of religion. Let's allow people to choose what they want to worship. Adam and Eve, see that tree? Don't touch it. Don't think for a minute God didn't know they were going to touch the tree. You want to know then why he put it there? You are way outside of my pay grade. You can ask him when you meet him face to face. But God gave a choice. God said, I want you to choose to love me. In order for you to choose to love me, I have to give you the ability to not love me and to choose to disobey. And I am fully in control and fully understand all that that entails. Don't think for a moment I'm reacting to this, people, says God. I got this fully in control. In fact, Adam and Eve, I know what you're going to do. And I've already solved the problem. So we go through all of history. And God has made a way through Christ. And as we go out into the world, what we're communicating to the world is this truth. And I think part of the problem is we just don't want the world to get angry at us or consider us whack jobs, and we so just want to fit in with the rest of the world. And we want to live like the world and have what the world has, and then at the end we'll just go to heaven and be with Jesus and our friends. But here's what I want you to understand. Peter and John were not worldly men. They were joyful men. The early disciples, the the five the three thousand and the five thousand, which is really fifteen thousand, these were people who rejoiced because they understood that they lived in this present darkness only for a period of time, and there was a purpose that they lived here. One to mature in their faith and preparation for eternity, but two, and perhaps even greater, to declare the wonderful truths of God in a lost world. And I think we keep our mouths shut too much. I think our lives don't match the words. And I wonder what would happen if we simply began to become a people of prayer. Father, give us the courage to live the lives you've called us to. Give us the focus to walk in obedience to you. 
Help us understand more fully that on our own, we can't do any of this, but through Christ we can do all things. God, create a new heart in us and renew a right spirit in us so we may come to know you through your word, that we may glorify you through our praises, that we may live in obedience to you as a church and as individuals in a lost world and use us mightily, God, for your glory. Help us understand the love you have for us and equip us to share that love with others. Because as we do that, I think people might begin to understand the truth of Christ more accurately. Which isn't this. You're going to hell, and you better get your act together so you don't go to hell, and here's what you got to do. you got to say, I love Jesus. you got to get your backside of the church and read a Bible. No. It's going out and interacting with people. So when they say to us, as we all, all heard many times, you really think that there's only one way to heaven? Yeah, can you believe it? There's a way to heaven. Well, I think, my mom, I think if you, if you live a good life, that God will let you into heaven. I'm flat with you. You living that good life? Well, I try my best. I'm not saying you don't try your best. Are you doing good enough by God's standards? See, here's where the Holy Spirit comes into play. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And what you get in most cases, I am and I'd appreciate you shutting your mouth because I don't want to hear what you have to say. I think you're an intolerant, ignorant fool. That's about the robustness of the persecution we'll face. Bad news is, you may lose your job, so I highly recommend becoming self-employed so you can't fire yourself. You can lose a job for this. Probably not going to go to prison. You can lose a friendship for this. You're going to be okay. You may have family members ostracize you. You're going to be okay. You know why? Because one day those family members and bosses and friends are going to meet Jesus face to face. And when they meet Jesus face to face, what you don't want to hear is, why didn't you tell me? What you will much rather hear is, I wish I would have listened to you, because we have an opportunity today, as we move over to the end of, end of chapter 17, 16, 17, somewhere up there, Paul's telling us that we live in a time when, when the, the, the times of ignorance are gone, and people are given an opportunity to be presented with the truth and make a decision of what to do with the truth. But that truth comes through us. Yet if we fear, pers- fear persecution, we won't share that truth. So, wrapping it up here. I want you to remember four things. Remember Acts 3, 11-26. Who we were, who we are, and why. Remember last week I asked you why did Jesus die for us? And how we pressed it beyond simply to forgive us of our sins. But in Acts 3.26, we saw that he died so that he could bless us. That his desire was to bless us. To make us completely joyful. To fulfill all of our God-given desires. Remember that. Be reminded of it day by day. Number two, remember 2 Corinthians 5.20. Everyone knows that, right? Can't just say, no, it's okay. But write it down and look it up. It has something to do with ambassadors for Christ. And that's what we are. Remember, we'll be persecuted. But number four, don't forget this. Persecution is a gift. Persecution is a gift that God offers to us. Jesus came to die for us so that he might bless us. And one of the the ways he blesses us is by allowing us to face persecution. That doesn't seem to make much sense, does it? Well, that's awesome. We get to go to jail for Jesus. Woohoo! You think Paul is like, I'm getting my back ripped open for the third time with 39 lashes. This is so awesome, Jesus. Thank you very much. No. But it goes so much deeper than that. 
Persecution, the Bible tells us, leads to maturity, rewards, joy, glory, identification with Jesus, and the salvation and encouragement of others. I think in our context we can praise God for the fact that the persecution we face or will face is so inconsequential, really. We can really rejoice in that. The worst you're going to get is someone might call you an idiot. Maybe someone will spit on you if it gets really, really bad. It's not going to get that bad. Renee might have eggs thrown at her when she gets out there with her signs, but Kim promised to hard-boil the eggs before she threw them, right? But we have that, that ability to go out. Here's a couple verses for you, and then I'll close. Just write these down. You can look them up later. This is because I'm assuming you don't believe me about persecution being a gift. Check out 1 Peter. You know who wrote that one? The same Peter who was locked up? Look at 1 Peter 2.20 and following. Look at 4.13 and 16. Look at 1 Peter 5.10. Crack open Philippians 2.17. Colossians 1.24. Look at Mark 13.13. 13. If you didn't write them down fast enough, that'll be online this afternoon. Check out what God calls persecution and why he, why he gives it to us and offers it to us. So here's what you take out of this. We've got to be a people of prayer. We've got to understand the message we're going to communicate is not going to be received well by all, but it will be received by some. We have to understand there's risk associated with it, but it's a good risk. It's a God-controlled and God-ordained risk that leads to massive reward. We've got to understand the reality of prison. That apart from Christ, people are eternally separated from God in prison. And the only way those gates open is when they hear the truth proclaimed and God opens their eyes and ears to that truth. Well, my friends, we are the modern-day Moses. We are the modern-day prophets who are entrusted with the Word of God to declare it to a lost world. Are you willing to take the risk? Are you willing to, to lose the ego? Are you willing to actually lay it on the line for Christ little by little, more and more, in the relationships we live in, by prayerfully seeking opportunities to live our lives before them and presenting them with the truth. There is downside to this from a worldly sense. You may face loss, but as you might face loss, as you might lose things, do you think that you will be saddened or rejoicing as you see person after person begin to come to faith? Because as you see that, you'll start to understand how these crazy dudes rejoiced in extreme affliction, which we will not face in this world. But to watch God use you to set a captive free, once that happens, it changes your life completely. Once you understand more fully that you were a captive who was set free, once you understand the incredible love that God has for you and the message He's entrusted to you, everything begins to change. After I pray, we're going to take communion. And as we take communion today, let's, let's think about whose body and blood that is and, and why it was given to us and what we've become through it. How we were freed from prison, how we are no longer living under condemnation, but we're completely forgiven, completely free, and, and seen through God's eyes as completely righteous. And ask God to reveal to us more fully the joy that should come from that. 
Understanding there is nothing that we can do and nothing that can happen to separate us from the love of God. To understand that as Christians, no matter what we do, God's wrath will never be upon us. That God is never going to be angry at us. That we don't face the judgment of God and condemnation, no matter what. The Christian life isn't a matter of can I or can't I. It's a life of freedom. And we simply begin to ask, will this glorify Christ? There is such comfort in that. What you do is not where your eternal salvation rests. It's what's been done. And that's what we're called to go out and declare. No matter what a person is up to, no matter how wicked in the eyes of the world or how well-conformed and seeming so wonderful, no matter what, God says, where you are, I forgive you if you turn to Christ. No matter what, no strings attached. Let us remember that as we partake. Let us be reminded of sharing that truth with others and let us prayerfully ask God to open the eyes of many so they can partake in this meal either here with us or somewhere else and be able to rejoice alongside us in what it means to be forgiven, loved, and a new creature. Father God, I thank you so much for the fact that that you love us. I thank you so much for the fact that you have forgiven us completely. I thank you so much for the fact that even as Christians, as we walk in disobedience, that you don't look down upon us with your head shaking and thinking, oh my goodness, what did I do with these fools? But yet you still see us through the blood of Christ. You give us opportunities to grow in our faith and be used mightily by you. But these aren't ways that we become right with you. These are things we do because we are right with you. God, it is so easy for for us to be conformed to this world. And you tell us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would renew our minds in incredible ways, that you would help us focus on you so clearly, that that you would help us understand your word, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us as we spend time in your word, that we would not be driven by guilt, that we would not stumble over the difficult things we can't fully grasp, but that you would help us to understand the wonderful truths of your word, that you would transform our minds in the process, that you would become our focus in all things, that we would seek to glorify you, that we would rejoice in the freedom that we have through Christ where we are no longer under condemnation. And we would understand the reality of those who live in separation from you and seek with prayerful urgency opportunities to present the truth in love to them and that we would love them in our actions, understanding that every interaction doesn't have to entail a gospel presentation, but often it's just a matter of offering to help someone out, letting someone know that we care about them, stepping in and and filling a need that they have, and trusting as we live those lives, you will give us opportunities, God, to share your truth with them. I pray as we come together as a church family and partake in communion today, that we would be reminded of what you have done for us, of how wonderful that is, and how sharing the gospel isn't a burden, it's a blessing. That we get to bring hope to a lost world. I've heard numerous times over the past few weeks, both presidential candidates refer to America as the great hope of the earth. God, America is not the great hope of the earth. Jesus is. And I pray that we would boldly go out and declare the certainty of hope in Christ, and that we would see people's eyes opened to that truth, and that we would praise you and glorify you and worship you in in awesome wonder 
through the entire process. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you, God, for all the days you will entrust to us. And thank you, God, for an eternity in perfection, which you made possible through the blood and the body of our precious and holy Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you to come forward. <clears throat>